Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of First Peter, to Peter's first epistle recorded in the scriptures. We'll be in chapter 1, and we'll be in the last verses of chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 this morning. First Peter 1, verses 22 through 25, and the title of the message today is The Word Endures Forever. As you'll see in a moment when we read the text, there's Maybe a couple main themes that we could pick out in the text before us, but as we look to Scripture in the time of preaching and times of teaching, we want to pull out a main point, a main point. And as we see in this text, the main point is the authority and the power and the eternal weight of God's Word. So the Word endures forever. Um, So let's read our text And then we will ask the Lord's blessing on our time today. If you will, please stand with me in honor and reverence of the Lord's word. And we will read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. This is holy scripture, God's word. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever and this is the word which was preached to you may god bless the reading of his word you may be seated i ask that you bow with me now as we go to the lord in prayer our father we bow before you now and Lord, I realize with with great significance our, our need and our reliance upon you. For Lord, we are like the grass and the flower that withers and falls away, but it's your word that is powerful and authoritative and endures forever. So, Lord, as we come to sit under the authority of Holy Scripture, we acknowledge that we are utterly dependent on you and your Holy Spirit to move and to work in our hearts. Lord, for our flesh would would like to come in and distract and to dull our minds. Lord, Satan would have nothing other than to take our attention away from your holy scripture, the glory of Christ that we see in scripture and the commands that we are to obey you and to love our brothers and sisters. Satan would like nothing more than to to steal our attention away and have the word to go out and return void. But Lord, your spirit is powerful. You are great and mighty. We ask that you would captivate the attention of our hearts and our minds today through your word. Lord, I pray that your word would comfort those who are being distressed by various trials. I pray that your word would strengthen those who are weak pray that your word would rebuke those who are in sin. We pray that your word would sanctify your people wherever we are. Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And you record the words of eternal life for us in the pages of Scripture. What a distinct privilege it is to have your holy book. 
your instruction for the Christian life. Lord, would you cause us to abide in Christ by abiding in the word? Would you cause your word to bear fruit in us? For the purposes of men will fail, but your word endures forever. Lord, be glorified in us today. Conform us to Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen. So again, the word endures forever. The word endures forever. As we look at this text, we must see that the word of God sanctifies our souls. The word of God shapes how we love one another. The word of God saves eternally. And the word of God stands forever. Christ and his work and his word endure forever. Let that sink in. Christ, his work, and his word endure forever. And those who are born again in Christ must must submit to his word in holy obedience, and we must endure in his work by loving the God who called us and the people who are his chosen saints in the world. We are set apart by God to obey his word and love his people. That's the thrust of this text, that he commands that we live holy lives and we love his people. We are strengthened and encouraged and built up by the fact that his word saves eternally and his word stands forever. And we are built up and encouraged not so that we can sit back with arms crossed and smug looks on our faces, but so that we can go out and obey the truth and love God's people. Now you have to remember Peter writing here, he's writing to saints who are suffering horrifically. They're being persecuted by all around them. They are hated strictly because of their faith. And Peter writes to encourage them, to build them up, to point them to their great hope in Christ. But Peter also offers pastoral exhortation by calling God's people to live holy lives. Trials and suffering and difficulties can be overwhelming. But we must not let those things take our eyes off of our heavenly prize, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We must not let the struggles of life cause us to live in such a way that does not honor or glorify the Lord. Trial and tribulation, nor anything else, can ever be an excuse to sin. We are called to be holy just as God is holy. And Satan would like nothing more than to distract or to distress you by trials, to take your eyes off of Christ, to cause you to focus on the present, and then lead you into temptation and sin. We must fix our eyes on the eternal work and glory of Christ and then follow him in obedience. Jesus is the supreme example of, of how we are to love our brethren and how we are to submit to the word. So as we work through this, there will be direct commands to us as to how we are to live. But dear friends, remember that Christ is the supreme example of all of these things. He is the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate obedience. If it were not to Christ, you would be lost and dead in your sin. So let's see Christ, but let's see the commands of God to his people as well. Beginning in verse 22, we want to see that the word sanctifies our souls. Peter writes, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. We see that the word is authoritative. It requires a response. The word tells us how to live, and we are to obey the word. But the word is also powerful. It is through God's word that he empowers his people to go and do what he he says. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. The word is powerful and authoritative. 
But now looking at this phrase, there's something that just jumped off the pages as I was studying this. Since you have an obedience to the truth, this is assumed obedience. There is so much nonsense in modern-day churches and modern-day evangelicalism that talks about how we just walk and live in grace. And yes, we do walk and we live in grace, but Scripture commands obedience. Peter assumes obedience in what he writes here. He is not making an argument for how grace and law work together. He is saying that you have walked in obedience. Obedience is not reserved for the super spiritual. Obedience is not reserved for some super Christian or the officers and leaders of a church. All Christians are expected to obey. Scripture commands it. And it's a serious matter to hear the truth and disregard it. Paul writes in Romans 2 verse 8, Regarding those who do not obey the truth, he said, But to those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will face wrath and indignation. To hear and to know the truth and to remain or to follow in a path of unrighteousness sets you on the path for God's wrath, his anger, and his fury for all eternity. God's people are expected to obey his word. Obedience is not something that's simply tacked on to the end of the gospel message by some super strict or some legalistic type of churches or people or religious entities. Obedience is our response to God's glorious work in salvation. Because we see the price that was paid for our sins, we respond in obedience. We are devoted to the Savior who laid down his life on the cross, who bled and died and suffered for your sins, and you respond with a life that is fully and wholly devoted to him. So the Lord expects obedience. He commands obedience, but I think in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, what this text then points us to in the, in the next phrase, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. When we think about purifying our souls, there's nothing that we can do. To whom does that point? It points to Christ. We obey the truth because Christ has purified our souls. How did Christ purify our souls? By washing us with his blood. We looked last week in verse 18 at that idea that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood. Precious blood of a lamb who was unblemished and without spot. No one is pure. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. You are sinful. You are condemned. And you were on a pathway to hell, but for God's grace. Your soul has been purified because you were bought with a price. You were bought by things that are not like silver and gold, which will perish, which will be burned up and will pass away. Those things find their value when they are refined, when they are purified. They go through a purification process to make them more and more valuable. Christ's blood was not like that. It was pure and spotless, completely perfect from the beginning. And that is the blood that redeemed you. That is how you are made and counted righteous and pure. You cannot earn that on your own in any way. Christ traded his robe of righteousness for your condemnation. The one who was eternally with God took on human flesh and then clothed himself in your sin, took your sin upon his back as he was hung on the cross and bore the wrath of the Father. And that is how you have purified your soul. Really, you have done nothing to purify your soul. Christ has done everything. It was finished at the cross. So if you are in Christ, 
You must be obedient. But it's only possible to be obedient because he has loved you. He has saved you. He has called you out of your darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. The power behind an obedient life is not that you do something right. It's that God loves you, placed his affection upon you, called you out of your sin, put his spirit within you, and then empowers you to do what is right. We must get the order of this process right. Regeneration precedes obedience. We must get the process right. Regeneration comes first and then obedience follows. But we must get the whole picture of the process as well. That regeneration necessarily leads to obedience. If you don't obey and walk with and desire to please the Lord, that calls into question any claim you might make to being born again in Christ. So the two go hand in hand. Since in obedience to the truth, you obeyed the truth, you have purified your souls. So it's the word that sanctifies in obedience to the truth. You've been purified, though, by that same word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the word of God, and he purifies your soul. That is how you are made to be sanctified. But there's that process. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the word sanctifies our souls. Moving on in verse 22, continuing on, we also see that the word shapes our love. The word shapes our love. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Set this up. John Calvin wrote here. I think this is brilliant. It helps kind of capture where Peter is going here. Calvin said that Peter had before spoken of the mortification of the flesh and of our conformity with the will of God. But he now reminds us of what God would have us to cultivate through life. That God would have us cultivate mutual love towards one another. Calvin continued, For by that we testify also that we love God, and by this evidence God proves those who really love him. If you want to prove that you love God, you fervently love one another from the heart. Love is one of the great and primary messages of all of Scripture. Love is one of the great purposes of the believer. Mike has been taking us through 1 Corinthians 13, and, and we're getting this picture of the importance of love. But we must hear that term carefully, and Mike has done a good job taking us through this to understand that we don't adopt the world's notion, the world's idea of what love is. We also don't adopt a notion that love supersedes any of God's other commands. For God's commands will never be pitted against one another. So it can't be that you love someone so much that you don't hold them accountable for their sin. You often hear people today say, you know, we, we just want to love on people. Yeah, I want to love people too, but we cannot love people at the expense of confronting sin in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. We must love, but love in God's people are really a means to an end. They're a means to the greater goal of glorifying God with our lives. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Loving God and loving others serves to build up that great purpose that we love and glorify God. And so Peter gives us a description here of how the word shapes our love for one another. Really, 
really two primary terms to look at in this. He, he says to, that we've been purified for a sincere love of the brethren. A sincere love. Biblical love, as we've also seen in 1 Corinthians 13, is not hypocritical. It is sincere. Um, one, one dictionary talks about how this term means undisguised and unfeigned. That means that true biblical love is clear and readily and easily apparent, but that it's also truthful and genuine. It is not hidden, it is not concealed, and it's not deceitful in any way. When we consider the call to love others, I think you can kind of, when you think about it, you can understand why this term would be kind of the first modifier, the first descriptor of that love, because if you do anything, if you love anyone in a hypocritical, in a, in a way that is not sincere, you have already missed the mark before you've even ever set foot on the path. You've already deviated before you've ever started striving to love properly. So this deals with our heart motives. We must love our fellow saints from a pure and a genuine and a truthful heart. Frankly, it's easy to show this type of hypocritical love. We often gain or earn some type of benefit or standing from loving other people. So you may gain the reputation as a good friend and a loving person, but really you're loving with a hypocritical motive and heart. You may earn benefit from you love and serve another, and they return that love and service to you, but you've already missed the mark because your heart is not sincere. That type of love is easy. The type of love that Scripture commands is not easy. It requires sacrifice. It requires putting yourself not first, putting yourself second, third, or last. It, it involves deciding what is best for your brother or sister in Christ and putting that as your primary motive. In a word, biblical love requires humility. Biblical love requires humility. And you can stop right there because it's in humility that you consider yourself less and consider others more. That is the driver to true, biblical, sincere love. Paul talked about this type of love in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 verses 9 and 10, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, and give preference to one another in honor. So what does that scripture say about love that would disregard sin or sweep sin under the rug? What does that scripture say about love that does not actively cling to what is good and hate that which is sinful? That type of word is hypocritical. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. If you are to love properly, you must hate sin. It begins in hating sin in your own life, but then it broadens out to hating sin in general, and especially hating sin in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, love does cover a multitude of sins. We, we certainly under, understand, as we learned that we don't go broadcast a brother or sister's sins. But just because we don't broadcast it doesn't mean that we don't go confront it. We must hold one another accountable. We must hate sin. You are being an unfaithful friend, an unfaithful church member, if you see a brother or sister in sin and do not go confront that sin. Now, you must do it patiently. You must do it gently you must have a heart that is ready to be persistent and endure and remain and strive with that brother or sister. But dear friend, you go confront that sin because that is true love. 
If you saw a loved one on a pathway to get run over by a train, would you let them continue walking across those train tracks? No, you would yank them off, you would throw them aside, and you would tell them, you can't go walk on that train track, you will be obliterated by the train. So it is with sin and brothers' or sisters' lives. You must hold them accountable. And if you're going to hold others accountable... Let's just understand that we must be ready to be held accountable ourselves. If you're not willing to be held accountable for your own sin, for your own life, for your own walk with the Lord, then you're nothing more than a Pharisee and a hypocrite, and you will walk through this life without many friends. You will walk through this life without the blessing of the Lord, without his pleasure, without glorifying him, because you will be walking in a life of sin. So we must love our fellow saints by hating what is sinful in their lives, loving what is good, and patiently and persistently addressing what is sinful and exhorting them according to the truth. So you purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. And then Peter exhorts, fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another from the heart. This is the manner and the source of love. The, the way in which you love someone is fervently, and the source of that love is truly and genuinely from the heart. Fervently could be translated as earnestly. It has in mind this idea of doing something that is never relaxed, doing something to, to the maximum extent and with maximum effort. Maximum extent and maximum effort. Again, you see where this just cuts the legs out from under this free grace idea where you can go and do as you please because there's grace for everything. You are to work to love with maximum effort. Of course, this type of tire love is tireless. It is without reservation. It is always active. It is, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, patient and kind and not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. All these things that we've been learning in 1 Corinthians 13, what Peter tells us is we should pursue them with maximum effort. We should pursue them to the fullest extent. And one, one challenge I would give you is at the end of the day, or periodically every few days at least, when, when you're winding down from the end of the day, ask yourself the simple question. Did I love the Lord? Did I love my family? Did I love my friends? Did I love my church with maximum effort and to maximum extent? Really stop and ask yourself. Are, are you striving with all you have to love one another fully, from the heart. You have to ask those questions, and we have to be honest with ourselves. We can't let our mind and our heart just run as a vacuum chamber where there's no feedback. Ask your spouse. Ask your parents. Ask a friend, a brother or sister in the church. Do they see you loving others to maximum, with maximum effort and to the maximum extent? that you are able. You know, I would challenge you, ask yourself that question and seek feedback from others because this is a command of God. Chief example of this kind of love is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. When he gave of his life on the cross, he showed what it means to love to the fullest extent. Not only did he suffer greatly physically, but he suffered way beyond that in bearing the Father's wrath for the elect saints of God. Jesus is 
the chief example. When he loved us, we were unlovable. When we were his enemies, he died and reconciled us to himself. When we wanted nothing to do with salvation or the things of the Lord, he reached out and poured out his life so that we could be called to God, so that his spirit could come into us and bring us to life. This is true love. It's the love that is modeled in Scripture. It's the love that is shaped by Scripture, and it's love that is commanded by Scripture. So again, I exhort you to look to the example of Christ. Look to how he loved. Read the Gospels over and over and over and over. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that we will be equipped. We understand that. But as we consider Christ as this prime example, consider, think about reading through the, through the Gospels to study the life of Christ, to see his example. Those Gospels have no more authority than any other Scripture but they do show us a great and clear example of our greatest goal, the one to whom we are striving to be conformed. So look to Christ. Love like Christ. So the word sanctifies our souls. The word shapes our love. And the word saves eternally. Look at verse 23. The word saves eternally. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. As I've alluded to a little bit, I kind of think there might be a little bit of a play on words here. You remember how in John's gospel, Christ is referred to as the word. In the beginning was the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We understand surely that the word, the gospel message, the, the, the word of God about Christ certainly has the power to save. But also we remember that Peter, our writer here, was a close associate, a close friend of John. Uh, it's not hard to, to make the connection that, as Peter says, that the word endures forever, and it's the word that saves that he's pointing both to the proclamation of this message of Christ, but also to the person and the work of Christ. So let's look at what he says here. He says that we are saved to an incorruptible, an um, imperishable salvation. Turn with me, if you will, to John's Gospel. John chapter 1. I want to read a few verses there to start considering this idea. We're, We're saved to this imperishable salvation through being born again. So let's think about the eternality of this being born again. John chapter 1, we really want to focus on verse 13, but let's begin at verse 9 to grab some context to John's writing. John 1 verse 9, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and to those who were his own that did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And here's the tie-in to 1 Peter 1. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born again not of the will of the flesh, Not through blood, not through the will of man, but we were born again by the powerful working of the Lord. This is the great hope in your salvation. You did nothing to earn it. It has nothing to do with what you were or were not able to accomplish. You were born again because of the will and the work of God. You did not earn your salvation And you cannot keep your salvation. But if you didn't earn it, and if you can't keep it, you can't lose it either. 
If you are saved by God through Christ and given from the Father to the Son, understand, dear saint, that you cannot lose your salvation. Jesus said, no one can pluck you out of his hand. And the Father who has given you to him is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck the saints out of the Father's hand. You were born again by the will of God, and you are sustained in your salvation by the work and the grace of God. You know, that's an important tie-in to the talk about obedience. Our obedience doesn't earn our salvation, and our obedience doesn't even keep us in salvation. We're kept in salvation only by the grace and the goodness of God. And we can say that without reservation when we also preach the parallel idea of obedience, of genuine progressive sanctification. You are saved not by your works, and you are kept not by your works. Now, I want to be technical for just a very brief moment with Peter's writing here to to help us understand the idea of being born again a little better again. He says, but you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. The term born again is used in the perfect tense. The perfect tense, and what that means is that this is a past action with present and ongoing results. Something that God did in the past that had results then, that has results today, and will have results continuing in the future. So in the past, you were adopted by God. You were called, elected, and chosen by Him to be a saint. And then in the past in your life, if you're a believer now, in in the past of this life, you were born again by the work of God. You're born again, and he now keeps you in that state of new life. You are kept in that state by God's work. You are presently born again because God keeps you there. But let's look at this from the other angle, that that you're presently born again, and there are present results in your life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are made alive together with Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. You are dead to sin and alive with Christ. You have been baptized with Christ, and you are risen together with Him so that you will walk in newness of life. So to be born again has the present implication and the present results of walking as one who is born again, one who is dead to sin and who is alive by God's work to righteousness. You are born again so that you do not remain in your sin. You are born again even so that you will not retain your sinful desires. You will not be made perfect on this side of eternity. You will fight and battle against sinful desires until the day that the Lord calls you home to glory. But you must fight. You must battle because your position as one born again requires that you live as one born again. 1 John 3, 9, No one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. To be born of God, to be born again, means that you don't practice sin. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus taught that sin begins in the heart. James chapter 1, verses 14 says, 14 and 15 says that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Where does lust begin? Lust begins in the heart. And when that lust festers in the heart, it gives way ultimately to sin if you don't kill that desire. If you don't cut off the arm of the flesh and and pluck out your eyes and cut off your hand that causes you to sin, that lust will fester in your heart and it breeds sin. But you are born again. 
You're born again, not of seed which is perishable, but that which is imperishable, the living and enduring word of God. You have Christ in you, which is your power to defeat sin. The power of sin is defeated in Christ. The penalty of sin has been paid, and we work now toward that day when we will be delivered ultimately from the presence of that sin. Long for that day where you're freed from the presence of sin, would you not walk in such a way to free yourself from sin today? That means putting to death the flesh. Walk by the Spirit so that you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. You're born again and you're kept by God. But because you have this imperishable seed of Christ in you, you strive and strain and labor to live as Christ lived, holy and righteous before God. So the word sanctifies our souls. It shapes our love. It saves eternally. And the reason that we have great hope in all of these things, looking to verses 24 and 25, is because the word endures forever. The word endures forever. Look at the text, verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. This was the word that was preached to you. This is a quotation from the book of Isaiah. And if you want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 40, I want to read some verses there to give us a little context. Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 to kind of understand what was going on. What was the Lord saying when he spoke these words to and through the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. It says, Comfort. O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and every hill made low. Let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely all the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, my Bible titles this section, The Greatness of God. Depending on your translation, you see either the greatness of God or the greatness of God and his comfort for his people, because that is what the Lord is doing, is offering comfort for his people. You say, how is that comforting to say that my flesh is like the grass, my glory is like the flower of the grass, and the grass withers, the flower fades, because the word of the Lord endures forever. Peter is comforting these suffering saints by reminding them that God's truth abides. God's truth stands. His truth abideth Still, the body, as Luther would say, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Consider the encouragement here then. Grass will wither. We, we see that. We, we understand that either in the heat of summer, in a drought, or in the cold of winter, the grass withers. The, the flowers of the grass, the, the glory of the grass and the flowers will fall off and they will die. Our flesh is like the grass. Our glory is like the flower of the grass. We will wither. 
we will, as the flower, fall off and ultimately die. These bodies are temporary and passing and transient and will one day be no more. And Peter comforts the people by reminding them that though your life may crumble, your life surely will come to an end, but not a jot, not a tittle, not the smallest part of the command or the promises of the Lord will pass away until they are all fulfilled. God's truth and his decrees and his promises and his faithfulness are eternal. So take comfort, dear friend. Your life is not meaningless. Your suffering is not without purpose. Your striving after godliness is not as though you're grasping at the air, though it can feel like all of life at times is like grasping at the air. Those things are not true because God's word stands and his promises remain. And he promises that if you are in Christ Jesus, you will see your Savior face to face and his grace will be sufficient for you. His power will be perfected in all of your weaknesses. So dear friend, take heart and find hope in the fact that the word of God stands forever. While your flesh withers and your glory fades, you must know that God's promises remain. Now to bring us towards our closing, I want to look at the end of verse 25. In the verse 25 where Peter writes, And this is the word which was preached to you. Really in the original, that sentence would be translated, And this was the glorious good news that was proclaimed to you. The English translation is just weak. This is the glorious good news that was preached to you. God's eternal word was preached to you as the work of Christ has been proclaimed to us through his scripture. So the question we must answer is, what is our response? How do we respond to the glorious good news of Christ proclaimed and taught and written in the pages of scripture? We respond with faith. We respond with repentance. We respond with obedience and devotion we respond with submission. We respond, hear this, with proclamation. We respond with joy. We respond with endurance, that you stand firm and remain. Directly in this context, we respond to the glorious good news of Christ by being obedient, letting the word, the truth, cause our souls to be obedient and to purify us, and by loving our fellow saints. Respond to the preaching of Christ with faith in him, with faith in him and repentance of your sins. And that is not a one-time thing. You respond with faith and you respond with repentance and that faith continues and remains. That repentance is not a one-time thing, but you are a believing repenter. You believe in Christ and continue to repent of your sins. Dear friend, you hear the eternal word of God and you give your life to obeying it. Devote yourself to knowing and keeping the word, to knowing and keeping, knowing and keeping, knowing and keeping. You can't keep that which you don't know. Devote yourself to the study of the knowledge of God through his word and then do what that word says. And don't keep this good news to yourself. Dear friends, we have this great treasure, the glorious gospel of Christ. Go out and be a proclaimer of the good news that salvation can be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the truth boldly and faithfully. And hear this good news and respond with joy. Have great joy because though weeping may last for the night, joy comes in the morning.
The morning is that glorious day when you see your Savior face to face. Respond with joy and allow that joy to well up in you and produce lasting endurance. Through all of life's challenges, dear friends, remember this good news that was proclaimed to you. Remember that in which you believe is the eternally enduring word of God. This word of God is a source of joy and strength for all of God's people. May the word sanctify our souls and may it shape our love for one another. May we thank and praise the Lord that the gospel of Christ saves not just today, but it saves eternally. And may we stand firm and remain because the word of God endures forever. May we walk in such a way that honors and glorifies him, that finds strength in this great truth that his word and his promises stand. Father, we come to you now and we do thank you for your word, for it is true and it is food for our famished and weary souls. Lord, it is your word that strengthens us. It's your word that sustains us. It's your word that shows us how we ought to live in such a way as to honor and glorify our Savior. So Lord, would you write your word upon our hearts? Would you cause it to bear fruit? Would you help us, Lord, to live in such a way that glorifies you? And would you especially, Lord, empower us and embolden us to go out and proclaim the gospel? Their souls lost and dying and going to hell. How greatly they need to hear of Christ. Please help us to be faithful to tell of the glorious good news and the work of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things now for his glory and in his name. Amen.